May it please the listeners. My name is Rich Schoenstein, and this is Law Brief. All right. You have a wonderful case, a wonderful cause of action against a company for breach of contract or a business tort or whatever. Uh, You have a very good, strong case. But the company is not who you really want to sue, by way of example. You want to find a way to pull in the owner of the company, be it another bigger company, which happens a lot, the parent company, or the owner or the shareholders of the company. You want to bring the human beings who own the company into your lawsuit for various reasons we're going to talk about today. I'm joined by my partner, Charles Miller. Hello. Hello, Charles. Nice to see you. Good to see you. And you're very familiar with this issue that many have called for years piercing the corporate veil. Yes, they have. All right. First question, why do you want to do this? Well, as you said, there are going to be times when you have a terrific cause of action against a corporation, but you are going to have a corporation that is insolvent and that for whatever reasons is not going to be able to pay any judgment. And it is a way to open up another pocket to find someone else to satisfy the judgment against the corporation. And so that's where you would be looking potentially to the owners. You know, the business corporation law in New York is very clear that the purpose of a corporation is to protect its owners from liability. It's a policy decision. It encourages or is designed to encourage commerce because we want people to start corporations. We want people to hire people and engage in business. And if we're going to have that, we need to provide a measure of protection against personal liability for corporate actions. All right. How do I get past that protection? What do I have to do? All right. Well, that's where we get into the concept of piercing the corporate veil. The corporate veil, of course, a corporation is a legal entity. It's subject to civil and criminal liability. But a corporation must act through individuals. And so, as I mentioned a moment ago, the business corporation law allows the formation of a corporation in order to create a shield or a veil between the corporation and the owners. And how we get around that is really there's there's, there's two things. There's a there's a test that was established in uh, 1993 in the Morris case that sets out a number of factors, but really what I want to focus on today is the are the two really most salient points. In order to pierce the corporate veil, you've got to start from having a corporation that did something wrong. Because really what you're asking a court to do, you might hear people talk about the corporate claim, a veil-piercing claim, and it's not really a claim. It's not an independent claim. It's actually a a dependent form of equitable relief. So if I'm going after ABC Corporation – I have to establish a basis upon which ABC Corporation is liable to me. That's exactly right. So you've got to find what the courts look at as the corporate wrong. How did the corporation, what action did the corporation take that harmed you and how did that cause your damages, right? And you have and it to show damages. It, it doesn't have to be anything particularly provocative. A corporate wrong can be 
breach of contract. Right, it can be. Or, you know, a fraud, I suppose, or some other business tort. It can be. Okay. It can be. But the second part of that, and this is uh, particularly easy to see when you have a, a breach of contract claim, because normally in a breach of contract claim, you're not going to be able to get at individuals, uh, at shareholders. You have a contract, the corporation breaches it, and your recourse is to the corporation as the counterparty. So in the veil-piercing context, what you're trying to do is say to the court, okay, I can establish that my counterparty breached the contract, that caused damages to me, and I should be awarded a judgment. That's part one. Now, part two, what I want to do is I want to show you, court, that there is conduct that was engaged in by the owners of the corporation that would justify piercing or ignoring the corporate veil and holding the owners jointly and severally liable for the judgment against the corporation. Let's see if we can take a look at a few examples to highlight the concepts that you're talking about here, the distinction between a corporate wrong and abuse of the corporate form. Can you give me an example of a situation where it would make sense to look past a corporation that has committed a corporate wrong and impose liability on an owner? Sure. Well, let's start with a situation where we have an issuer of notes and that issuer doesn't pay defaults. And normally, you know, that's a, a breach of the terms. It's a default. And your recourse is probably set forth in the documents. And, you know, you may have a breach of contract claim. And that is not going to get you past the corporation. The corporation is your counterparty. That's who you were doing business with. Right. And, and if the note only had the corporation as your counterparty, didn't have a guarantor by way of example, or didn't have other obligors, you would only be able to look at the, to the company. Yeah, well, that's right. That's right. Now, that could change, though. Uh, let's say that the company that issued the notes was set up by the shareholders along with a bunch of other companies – and that together, what those companies did was they borrowed the money, they went through a number of conveyances, maybe even fraudulent conveyances, to get the money out of those companies and into the hands of the owners. And that's why the issuer defaulted on the note. That might be a case, and there's case law that suggests that that is a case where the plaintiff could pierce the corporate veil. Now, you've done, you've done two interesting things there, and I think they're connected. One is you've told me that the owners did something shifty to take the money. Yes. And you've linked that shiftiness to the breach of contract. Yes. So I see these claims, I see these piercing the corporate veil claims in complaints all the time, and the traditional allegations are always – you know, there are two companies, they share the same address, they have the same phone number, they have the same president, they have the same board of directors. Is that stuff sufficient? No. Look, Rich, there's nothing wrong with, you know, you going out and starting 100 different companies, running them all out of your house, all with the same address, all with the same phone number, fax number, email address. There's nothing actionable about that. 
Right. And, and, and I can set them up all as individual companies and take advantage of the corporate form that the law provides. Right. Unless you do something that abuses the corporate form, unless you use one of those companies improperly. And in the scenario we were just talking about, the owners use the company improperly by making it part of a larger scheme, the goal of which was to borrow the money from the lender through the note and then to get all that money pushed up to the shareholders, leaving the borrower unable to pay. And I suppose the commonality allegations, again, common phone number, common address, common shareholder, that helps you establish the fact of control. Right. If you're trying to to demonstrate that you've got a, an owner who controls, who clearly on paper controls a single entity, but then there's a whole bunch of different subsidiaries and it's hard to tell where the control lies because, you know, there's, there's multiple companies and, and subs. And, you know, what this does is it's a way of, of saying to the court, look, let's just cut through the nonsense, okay? This is just one business, all right? You've, you've got 20 cab companies, each with two cabs that it owns. And what the owners are saying is, oh, well, each of these cab companies only has two cabs, so that's all you could ever sue for. That's all you could ever recover. Let's get real, okay? We've got 20 companies with two cabs, right? That's, that's one business with 40 cabs. Right. And so making those allegations, they share everything, they have the same phone number, et cetera, et cetera. That's a way of saying to the court, let's cut through the nonsense and just treat this as what it is, which is one single enterprise. Do you have any kind of understanding of where the term piercing the corporate veil came from? <laughs> you know, not specifically. I think just it's the protection offered by the corporate structure, I think, has just come to be known as the corporate veil. You know, I hear, I hear pierce the corporate veil or lift the corporate veil. I, I almost think of Game of Thrones more than I do business law. I've heard it also as the corporate shield. I'll tell you what, I'll give a challenge to the listeners. If they have a better phrase than pierce the corporate veil, they can uh, post it on our Twitter account. We're at Law Brief Podcast on Twitter and some other social media, by the way. Any other examples you want to give us where a veil piercing would make sense? Yeah, I'll give you a case where uh, an example where a veil piercing might make sense and then, and then one where it didn't fly. Okay. Actually, why don't I start with the one that didn't fly? Because the one that didn't fly, that's the case with the cabs. Okay, go ahead. And what the plaintiff said is, look, I got hit by a cab, and this uh, cab is owned by a company that has only one other cab. But really, these owners who own that company, they own 10 cab companies, two cabs each. That's one business with 20 cabs. And the court said the court didn't really care about that. That's not what it turned on. What it turned on was the plaintiff's failure to identify the abuse of the corporate form. So the plaintiff did allege up and down all the cabs are garaged together. This is the Walkowski case from 1966, the Court of Appeals, and this is the basis for all New York law on piercing the corporate veil. The court said, yeah, look, you've, you've alleged all this stuff about how these, you know, they, they garage the cabs together, they pool their receipts, all the drivers, drive all the different cabs. Fine. 
but you haven't alleged that there's any abuse of those corporate of those corporations. And what the plaintiffs said was, look, here's the problem, Your Honor. Here's what they did wrong. They set these companies up deliberately as shields to protect them from liability, and they undercapitalized them, and they underinsured them. And the court said, there's no law that says that any company has to have enough assets and be capitalized sufficiently to handle any liability. And by the way, at the time, under New York's vehicle and traffic law, $10,000 was the minimum amount of insurance that you could get away with running a cab company. So they hadn't done anything wrong. A couple of things stand out about that example for me. One is, in the prior example, there was a link between the abuse of the corporate form and the fact that there was a breach of contract. They took the money away, and therefore they couldn't pay the money that was owed under the contract. Here, there's no link whatsoever. Somebody got hit by a cab. That's completely unrelated to anything going on with ownership. Look, well, you really nailed it because that's where the court really found the flaw, the fatal flaw in the case, is the court said, look, you're coming in here, Mr. Walkowski, and you're complaining that that this cab company operated a cab negligently, and as a result of that, you were injured. All I can do for you under a veil-piercing theory is if you can show me abuse of the corporate form, I can force the owners to open up their pockets and pay and be jointly and severally liable for the cab company's liability, for its judgment. If, if, if I issue a judgment against the cab company, I can also make the owners jointly and severally liable. But that's not what you're coming in here complaining of. What you're coming in here and complaining of is that they set up these companies and they defrauded you by not having enough insurance and enough funds to satisfy a judgment. Those are two different things. Look, if you got a fraud claim, if you think they defrauded you, bring your fraud claim. Right. That was the other thing that stood out to me. The argument that they purposefully set a corporation as a shield to liability and only gave it so much capital to limit the liability, that's the whole point of a corporation. Yep, and that's exactly what the court said. Right, and if you change that, you really set back centuries of corporate law. That is what that is the corporate form, for better or worse, that we permit in this country. Okay, Charles, tell us a little bit about your practice. I'm a litigator, Rich. I focus on uh, security and financial services disputes. I work largely on complex debt transactions and other sorts of financial transactions. All right. I will add, Charles and I are the co-chairs of the Tartar, Krinsky, and Drogan Securities and Financial Services Litigation Group. I said to the firm a couple years ago, I'd like a title, and the best that we could come up with was co-chair. So recently I said I would like a different title, and we came up with podcast host. So I don't know if that's an upgrade or a downgrade or a lateral move. All right, now we move into what we call our closing argument. If you have a takeaway for the audience on uh, what they might learn from today's discussion of veil piercing, now is your chance to make a pitch. Here it is. If you are a shareholder and you are being sued for piercing, you know, somebody's trying to hold you liable under a veil piercing theory, I'm sure your counsel will help you with this, but be very mindful as to whether the plaintiff has done a good job of distinguishing between the corporate wrong 
as committed by the corporation and whatever it is that you have purportedly done wrong or allegedly done wrong. And conversely, if you are the plaintiff, you had better be very, very clear in your, in your pleading. This is the thing the company did wrong. This is how it caused harm to me. This is the level of damages, and this is why you should hold the shareholders liable as well because they did this that was an abuse of a corporate form. And I can't really argue with that. I think uh, just having a wrong by the corporation and the traditional hodgepodge of control features we've talked about, bank accounts and addresses and the like, is rarely enough. You need to show the additional indicia of abuse of the corporate form. Yes, you can try to mask it with lots of allegations, and I would say that there are a good many cases, a good many pleadings out there where the plaintiffs try to hide the ball by alleging all of those other sorts of factors. But at the end of the day, if you don't have an abuse of the corporate form that is distinct from the corporate wrong, you are not going to get through the corporate veil to the shareholders. All right. Excellent. Thank you very much, Charles. Thank you. Thank you again for listening to Law Brief. Now here's something lawyerly, a disclaimer. We are not your lawyers. We do not have an attorney-client relationship, and this podcast does not constitute legal advice. If you need legal advice, you should contact and engage counsel of your own choosing who can best address your own situation and particular needs. You can find more information about our law firm, me, and many of our guests at our website, www.tartarkrinsky.com. We are a mid-size, full-service firm located in New York City and New Jersey. If you want to contact us for any reason, be it comments, topic ideas, or anything else, you can email us at podcast at tartarkrinsky.com. You can also follow this podcast on iTunes, among other places, and we would very much appreciate it if you rate or review us. I'm Rich Schoenstein, and this was Law Brief. <laughs>